Hey, California Dreaming listeners, my name is Keith Sharon. When I'm not listening to Roseanne Sinclair spin amazing true crime tales, I'm the host of a podcast called Crime Beat, which is produced by the Southern California News Group. We produce a deep dive narrative podcast about fascinating cases in Southern California. Crime Beat Season 1 was called Stealing Nixon's Millions, and it was about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States. That story was the inspiration for the 2019 movie Finding Steve McQueen with Forrest Whitaker, Travis Fimmel, Rachel Taylor, and William Fickner. Season 2 was called Mom vs. Murderer. It focused on the murder of Kathy Torres, the Cal State Fullerton student who was found stabbed 74 times in the trunk of her own car. Please subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. We're currently working on an incredible case for Season 3, coming soon. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back. First, I have a couple of people to thank before I get into the addendum for this week's episode. I'd like to thank Keith Sharon for taking the time to meet with me to talk about Ron Perkar's case. He is the subject of episode 132 entitled The Tale of the Marine in the Lake. Keith told me some very surprising and eye-opening things that shined a lot of light on this story and honestly put many of the questions that we may have had about it to bed. I'd also like to thank Diane Garrett, Ron's sister, for coming into the group and answering some of the questions that we had. I know you didn't have answers to many of them, and I know that some of them are essentially irrelevant at this point, but I am very grateful and pleased to hear your voice in this tragedy. I had made some musings about Ron's family, and based on the answer you provided to the question as to why your parents chose not to speak about Ron, told us a great deal about why things happened the way that they happened. As for your efforts or desires to have some answers, it leaves no doubt that you wanted them, and you did what you could back in 1997. But there's only so much you can do when you're not feeling that you have the complete support of your parents. Your comment under that question was heartbreaking. And I think I speak for all of us who listened to your brother's story or read about it in the Orange County Register when I say that we've all felt a deep sense of sorrow for Ron's loss, and are hoping for you to see a resolution and a measure of justice soon. It has been far too long. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to Ron's story and those who shared your thoughts and asked some questions. In the meeting that I had with Keith a couple days ago, I realized a few things. One being that there are just some questions that are never going to have answers, and I have to be okay with that. And in understanding that, I might need to dial it down a little bit when it comes to going off wildly in directions where I think I might find some answers. Some things are just going to be lost forever. And in Ron's story, we have to accept that we're not going to be able to know or find everything. What happened to Ron's case to me kind of feels like what happened to John Bonet Ramsey. Opportunities lost that we can never get back. What all does that entail? Well, 
If you had one singular thing or person or set of persons to hold responsible for Jean Benet's murder being unsolved to this day, what would it be? My initial thought is a breakdown in police protocol and procedures when it comes to taking and maintaining control of the crime scene. Of course, there are other things that worked in tandem with that, but the responsibility for those things to me falls squarely at the feet of law enforcement. They're the ones who are supposed to handle a crime at the onset, and that did not happen in Jamine's case, and I don't think it happened with Ron's case either. However, for Ron, it seemed to have been a combination of a number of unfortunate circumstances that led to his murder having gone unsolved for almost 23 years. Based on some of the things that I learned in the meeting with Keith and the few comments that Diane has made in our group, I think I've come to the conclusion that the Las Vegas Metro Police and the NCIS simply didn't move quickly enough during the critical early stages of the case. And I'll just put it out there right now that Ron's death was not a suicide. All the Reddit speculation, while I don't want to say was a waste of time because it was an interesting point to explore, and it kept people talking about Ron, which in a case like this is so important. And even if Ron participated in an act of assisted suicide, that is still a crime. You can't shoot someone in the head to help them die. You're going to be prosecuted. You're going to go to jail. And if someone did shoot Ron in the back of the head and wanted to claim that Ron asked him or her to do it, I'd first demand proof that Ron wanted that to happen. And even then, you still are not permitted to carry it out, no matter how much someone begs and pleads for it. I suggested in episode 132 that the ball was dropped in the investigation into Ron's murder. I still think that, though maybe I could have considered some other factors. Critical time was lost because Ron had been in the lake for about three days, according to the medical examiner. So Ron's killer had a three-day head start. Also, I am under the impression that once Ron went missing on June 15, 1997, the urgency to find him was never in place. The question wasn't specifically asked, but Diane shared what happened when it was realized that Ron was missing or thought to be missing because he failed to show up for work. She said, quote, The Marine Corps tried to contact my parents when he did not show up for work. However, my parents were on vacation. The Marines then contacted my older brother, who then contacted me at work. I then called the Marine Corps to get some info, talked to the manager at his apartment complex, and begged them to go in his apartment to see if he was in there, but they said no. And incidentally, Dreamers, Ron's family lived in Illinois, so they were pretty much at the mercy of whatever they could get anyone over here in California or Nevada to do for them. Diane continued, I started calling hospitals and police. I talked to our local police who gave me the story that he probably just ran away or something like that. I was told the number of murders that happen in Vegas on a weekend outnumber what we experience in an entire year. So this was just another case for them. When my parents returned from vacation, I shared the news that Ron was missing. 
So what that tells us is that when Ron was found floating in the lake, nobody would have known who he was until they got him back to the medical examiner's office, took his fingerprints, and identified him to his prints on file with the military. Because Ron had not yet been reported missing, his name and information was not making the rounds through law enforcement agencies. Ron's wallet was in his car and his car had been towed, so those things would not have been immediately connected to him. So there was likely no way Ron was going to be identified immediately upon the discovery of his body. And when he was identified, he didn't come up as missing. And if there was any truth to what Diane was told about Ron being just another case, I mean, come on, how many active duty Marines are shot execution style and tossed into a lake in Las Vegas? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say in 1997, Ron was probably the only one. And that's not to say that Ron's murder should have taken precedence over anybody else's. It may very well have been all the Las Vegas Metro Police could do and say about his case, that they were an overwhelmed department and there was only so much they could do. Perhaps because Ron was a Marine, it was assumed that the military would handle the investigation thoroughly and properly, and maybe the NCIS figured the same about the LVMPD. If that was the case, then Ron fell through the cracks, just like that pop fly ball falling to the ground between two outfielders. In watching my daughter play softball for years, while she usually played first base, other than seeing an overthrown ball fly way over her head, there is hardly anything more disappointing than seeing a guaranteed out turn into a base hit, possibly even a double. Imagine being Ron's sister, having to sit there and watch as Ron's unknown killer rounded the bases, thinking that he or she has hit a home run with this perfect crime. But here's the thing, dreamers. While I can't share very many details right now, what I can tell you is Ron's killer did not hit a home run. Ron's death is not the perfect murder, and his killer has not made it to home plate. Like I said, I am not at liberty to discuss very much about the current status of the investigation except to say that this case is not as cold as it sounded in episode 132. And the Las Vegas Metro Police are actively making some headway. And I'm really excited to eventually be able to tell you more. But it is not my story to tell, and that is abundantly clear. I did take a lot of liberties in the story about Ron and granted, it is not unlike me or all of us to go off on these wild goose chases with all of our theories and explanations for things, or at least searching for them. But there's a reason why this show isn't primarily an unsolved mystery style production. I am totally guilty of going way out into left field and into Reddit and entertaining things while interesting can also be distracting and misleading. When we don't know answers, we crave them even more. At least I do. My curiosity about Ron's case was off the charts this week. But after talking to Keith, 
and seeing Diane engage in our group, I've been brought back down to earth because the answers are actually within reach. And I have to be patient and we have to be patient together. That being said, what I do want is for Ron's story to be our collective journey. For us who were intrigued, interested, saddened, troubled, distressed, or upset by what happened to him. I want us to stay with this and follow his story as it goes along because progress is being made and answers are within reach. And with Ron's sister, along with Keith, and a dedicated cold case unit in Las Vegas, it's actually happening. As soon as the ball gets rolling, I promise I will be able to bring you all of the information I can as quickly as I can. We won't be the first to know. I'd say we're about in fourth or fifth place behind the Las Vegas Metro Police, behind Diane, behind Keith, behind the person or persons of interest, and then us. Ron's murder went unsolved because of the perfect storm of missteps on a number of levels. The Las Vegas Metro Police, not moving quickly enough to obtain the crucial evidence needed in this case back in 1997, in the hours and days following the discovery of his body. Ron's parents not really being able to get the message or understand the urgency of their son having failed to show up for work and continuing to remain missing for several days following, which led to a missing persons report not being filed. And the end of CIS, for whatever reason, choosing to close the investigation into Ron's death which is a decision I can't quite understand other than to say that they possibly just opted to leave it in the hands of Las Vegas investigators. And those investigators apparently classified Ron's death as just another case, at which point Ron got shuffled into their stacks of homicide case files where it grew cold. And from what Diane has intimated to us, or at least hinted at, her parents opted to deal with the loss of Ron and their grief by turning inward and away from it. Can we even put ourselves in Diane's place at that time, where she must have been with it back then when she was a young adult? We don't know what was going on. I'm sure life was busy with work and family and whatever was happening in her life. To be hit with the shocking news that your brother has been murdered and your parents' reaction is to run away. I can't speak for Diane, but it could not have been easy. It's like this painful thing being compounded by more painful things. And now it's been weighing on her for more than two decades. Her parents, Ron's parents, did not live to see progress in his case but diane did and she is seeing it she's making it happen she's doing what her folks should have done all those years ago demanding answers and she's gotten the las vegas metro police to stop dragging their feet on this and those answers are within reach so the bare minimum that i can tell you is a couple of things the Las Vegas Metro Police have confirmed that there was, in fact, a second life insurance policy 
on Ron's life at the time of his death. They've confirmed the existence of that policy. I can also tell you that there is a clear person of interest, and it is not anyone that we talked about in the episode. And there is a strong possibility that the person of interest was in Las Vegas at the same time that Ron was. And as soon as the police can confirm more of the details and that these things are relevant to Ron's case, only then can that information be brought forth. So everyone here is kind of waiting on pins and needles, including you guys listening now, so you're welcome. As much as I did enjoy exploring some of the theories that I found on Reddit, and it was interesting to ponder some of those possibilities, the fact is those can, for the most part, be dismissed. When I was first writing Ron's episode, I was actually in Las Vegas. Henderson more specifically, but close enough. I had read Keith's article back when it was published in November, and I was immediately interested. I had never heard of Ron before. And coincidentally, I did live in Huntington Beach for three months in the summer of 1997. As a matter of fact, the day that I moved in with my roommates that I was renting a room from was the very night of the Tyson-Holyfield 2 fight. My roommate ordered the pay-per-view and was hosting a watch party, and I was trying to be as undisruptive as possible as I was carrying all my junk through the living room that night. I just don't remember hearing about Ron's case. Do you know, I was 22 years old. I wasn't paying all that much attention to the local news, I guess. But I do clearly remember that a couple of months later, Just before I moved out of Huntington Beach into a place by myself, Princess Diana was killed in France. That was a very vivid memory, so I wasn't completely checked out of the news. But I did not hear about Ron's story. So as I was writing about him in preparation for this week's episode on our show, I started to grow really frustrated with how little information that I was finding and how at every turn I had more and more and more questions and nobody to ask about it because there was no answers to be found anywhere on the internet. So I started poking around on Facebook and I decided to search for Ron's sister and I found her right away. I saw pictures of Ron as a Marine, but also them as children. So I knew I had the right person. I opened up Messenger and I started to compose a message to Diane, but I stopped myself. And Keith asked me why I didn't reach out to her. And I told him because I didn't want to cause her any more distress or bring about any more painful memories. I mean, I had questions about cell phones and DNA and fingerprints and surveillance footage and police searches, just mundane and frankly, nosy questions. So I just clicked out a messenger and looked through some of the pictures of Ron and his family. And then I noticed that Diane and I had one mutual friend. At some time, in all the ways that the podcasting world crisscrosses social media, Keith and I became connected. I can't say if it was because we're in Orange County or if it's because he writes for a paper that I read online fairly regularly, 
looking for crimes to talk about or because we are both podcast hosts or if it's because we are alumni of the same high school. Even though he graduated 12 years before I did, we still had a couple of the same teachers. Whatever it was, we were connected. So I didn't immediately make the connection to the article that he wrote about, but when I pulled it up again, there was Keith's name in the byline. I felt a little bit more comfortable reaching out to him, first for permission to cite his article, but also to see if he had anything to add to the story. Unfortunately for me, because I'm always prepared for the worst, to be completely shut down or told to go away, Keith was more than receptive, and he was so kind and so helpful, and a real champion for not only journalism, but also the concept of podcasting as a medium, and for that, becoming a branch of journalism. So I owe him many thanks for allowing me to do this story. And I made it clear that I wasn't a journalist. But I left our meeting this week with an appreciation for the need in the future to make sure I say things responsibly, especially in cases that are unsolved. So for now, I can only tell you so much because it is important for us to handle Ron's case as respectfully as possible. As for the laundry list of things that we were wondering about Ron's case, Many of our questions simply can't be answered now because of either the passage of time, because the opportunity to gather the information is lost forever, or the information is there, but it's being kept close to the vest. If you look at the post in the group where I asked if any of you had questions about the case, you will see that Ron's sister answered some of them to the best of her ability. Again, I want to say thank you to Keith Sharon for sharing Ron's story and being so gracious about letting me use your work to put together the episode. Dreamers, I just binged Keith's entire second season of his podcast, Crime Beat. If you haven't listened, you are missing out on a really incredible story with so many surprises. I could not get through those episodes fast enough. It is also a very real and human journey that only a mother who experienced the worst loss imaginable could understand. It is truly a gripping story, so thank you, Keith, for bringing us that as well. Keith is a journalist with the Southern California News Group, and recently he's been covering the tragic death of John and Carrie Altabelli and their 13-year-old daughter, Alyssa, who perished in a helicopter crash on January 26, 2020, in Calabasas, California. John was the head coach of Orange Coast College's baseball team since 1992. He led them to four state championships. He marked his 700th win in 2019 and was also named Coach of the Year. The Altabellis died along with retired NBA player Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, Sarah Chester, and her 13-year-old daughter, Peyton, Christina Mauser, and pilot, Era Zobayan. The girls were teammates on the Mamba Sports Academy, which was founded by Bryant, and Mauser was their assistant coach. Keith wrote about the memorial that was held at Angel Stadium this week for the Altabellis, so look him up. 
I'd like to also thank Diane for joining our group and helping to clear up a few things for us. Everyone, please keep Ron and his family in your thoughts because good things are coming. And thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for updates on this case. And until next time, sweet dreams.